Thank you, Matt, and uh, worship team for leading us in worship this morning, and uh, it's good to be here with you today. I don't often get up here very, uh, but I'm uh, pleased to be asked to do so. I don't know how all of you are dealing with the heat. I, I got online and saw some, and read some of those, you know, one-line heat, it's so hot that uh, things, you know, it's so hot that hens are laying boiled eggs, and, and uh, it's so hot that uh, even Siri is asking for a glass of cold water. Uh, and there are a bunch of those like that. But we've all coped, and we're hopefully going to get some relief tomorrow uh, and uh, maybe get back to a more normal summer. I've been, uh, really appreciated and, and uh, got a lot about this, pray, this sermon series that James has been leading us in 1 John. I've, I've preached from 1 John and quoted from 1 John, but I'd never, I'd look back and I'd never had a, let's preached a series from 1 John. And, and James has really opened up a lot of insights that I've appreciated and I'm sure you have too. But so let's, uh, as he has often done, I thought I'd start out by just reviewing kind of where we've been so far in 1 John, uh, a series that he has entitled that you may know, Signs of Eternal Life at Work in You. And John states his purpose for this letter in chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants us to be confident of our relationship with him, confident of his purpose for us. And so he sets down a series of tests, not, not just in one order at one part of the, book, the letter, but all through the letter. He goes back and forth, as James has said, with some common themes. And the first of those tests, he suggests, is abide in God. And the question you ask yourself is, are you practicing righteousness? And John 2, 1 John 2, verse 3 is the lead verse for that message. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Abiding in God means doing as God has commanded. It's all about obeying God. The second test, power over sin. Are you trusting in God to forgive you when you confess your sins and that you still have a right relationship with him? And the key verse there is 1 John 1, 9, which you've heard quoted many times, I'm sure. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and will forgive us our sins and, for, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the third test is true love. Do you love others just as God loves you? And John writes in 1 John 4, 11, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then last week, we looked at, he looked at the fourth test, pursue what lasts. Am I pursuing the world or am I pursuing what lasts even into eternity? And he writes in 1 John 2, 17, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And that brings us to the fifth test this morning. He, is, uh, he titles it Pursue What Lasts from Last Week. And today, it's to test the nature of your faith in Jesus. Do you, have the, you have the Spirit of God, and you can understand that better as you test the nature of your faith in Jesus. I want to tell you a story about Oli. Oops, let's get that fixed first. There we go. Tell you a story about Oli. Oli was a Lutheran who lived in a community, a neighborhood of all Catholics. And every Friday evening, he would get out his grill 
and slap a steak on the grill and it would cook and it would just waft odors of fresh cooked steak all over the neighborhood. And of course they're all Catholic so they couldn't, they couldn't abide in that and so they decided that they would go talk to Ole about converting to Catholicism. So they did, they sent a few representatives and told Ole the situation, he's the only Lutheran in the whole community and would he be willing to convert to Catholicism? And he, he thought about it, he wanted to be a good neighbor, so he said, okay, sure, I'll go through the catechisms and, and I'll become a Catholic. So he did, uh, he did all that he was supposed to do in, in, in the classes that he took and the time came for him to actually go through the ceremony of being uh, pronounced a Catholic. And uh, part of the ceremony, as it ended at least, was the priest sprinkled him with incense and said, Ole, you were born a Lutheran, you were raised a Lutheran, but now you are a Catholic. And they had celebration of that and all went to their homes, confident that they wouldn't have to put up with that Friday odor of steak frying all over the neighborhood. But sure enough, on Friday, Ole got out his grill and he cooked his steak. And a couple of his closest neighbors decided that they were going to have to go over and tell him that as a Catholic now, you just cannot eat steak, you're not supposed to eat steak on Friday. And as they were approaching his house, they looked over the fence and they saw Ole. And he was sprinkling salt on his steak. And he said, you were born a steak, you were raised a steak, now you are a fish. <laughs> well, Ole didn't pass the test. <laughs> of being a committed Catholic. But when it comes to the testing of your nature of faith in Jesus, there is a way to understand what's involved in that. And John tells us about it. He says, first you have to acknowledge that Jesus Christ who has come in the flesh is from God. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, which we're going to look at in a minute. But in chapter 2, verse 18, John warned his readers about prophets, which he refers to as antichrist. Now, antichrist is just prefix anti, which means being against something, so or not, not agreeing with someone. And so these are antichrists, they are against Christ. He says, dear children, and this, this is the last hour, as you have heard, that antichrist is coming. Even now, many antichrists have come. Now, one group of these false prophets was known as the Gnostics. That comes, their name comes from the Greek word for know or knowledge. And they, these were in the church at that time, and they were, they were saying that Jesus really wasn't, from God, wasn't God, uh, and that uh, the Spirit of, of, of God, the Holy Spirit, really wasn't in him until he was baptized, and then it left him before he went to the cross. So it really wasn't Christ who died on the cross. They, the, that kind of uh, teaching they, they gave, and, and it, was, it was growing. It was growing enough for John to be concerned about it, that, uh, that they were saying Jesus was not the Christ. But John makes very clear in, in verse 22 of, of what we just read, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist denying the Father and the Son. And then he says about these antichrists in chapter 4, our main text for today, verses 1 through 3, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 
But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. Now John was very clear about here about the divine nature of Jesus. That when he opened his gospel in John, the gospel of John chapter 1, he also made it very clear when he says, In the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus he's referring to, and the Word was with God, and here it is, and the Word was God. John was saying that Jesus as the Word is the beginning and source of all things. Everything. He's the source of all knowledge, of all being. He's the essence of the natural and the supernatural in the universe. Paul said it this way in Colossians 1.17. He that is Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now think about that. Jesus holds the universe together. Whether you're speaking about the physical universe and the great expanse of space with its constellations and galaxies and the solar system, and also about the universe of our lives with its complexities and its relationships and, and, and things changing all the time around us. Jesus holds that all together. He makes sense out of the nonsense of this world's wisdom, and we have a lot of that going around today. Then in John 1, verse 14, he makes another statement that would have shocked some people in his day if they read it for the first time but it's important for us as Christians to understand it. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. This is the great truth of Christianity that separates us from all other world religions, that our God is not a remote, unapproachable God somewhere out there. He has come to us rather in person. He visited planet Earth. He became an infant and He became uh, one of us, but at the same time, divine in nature. I think Max Lucado captures what the word became flesh truly means in his book, God Came Near. This is what he wrote. That particular moment, like that is, he's speaking about the moment of the word becoming flesh. That particular moment was like none other, for through that segment of time, a spectacular thing occurred. God became a man. The omnipotent, in one instant, made himself breakable. He who had been a spirit now was pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with the word chose to, the dependent, to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. When you acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come as God in flesh, your faith is well founded in truth. The second test of the nature of your faith in Jesus is Jesus, Lord of your life. John, 1 John 4, 4, he writes, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. That is the false prophets. You have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. John assures his readers that they can be uh, overcome the false prophets because they have placed their faith in Jesus. And he's greater than the one who is in the world. So allowing him then to be Lord of your life will empower your faith and enable you to resist what the world has to offer. Robert Boyd Munger had a classic story he called My Heart, Christ's Home. 
And he points us to the everyday personal implications of making Jesus Lord of your life. And he uses a house with its various rooms uh, to, to demonstrate that. Uh, and he invites Jesus to enter first one and then another of those rooms and consider the implications of him becoming the Lord of your life of kind of what takes place in that room. For example, he says, imagine inviting Jesus into the family room of your house. You invite him to look over the books and the magazines you read, the pictures on your walls. In today's setting, it might also include an invitation for him to see your MP3 playlist or your Netflix library or perhaps the history file of your internet search engine. Would you, like Munger, find yourself being a little uncomfortable as Jesus peruses that family room? He writes, strangely, I'd not felt self-conscious about this before, but now that he was there looking at these things, I was embarrassed. Some books were there that his eyes were too pure to behold. On the table were a few magazines that a Christian had no business reading. As for the pictures on the walls, the imaginations and thoughts of the mind, some of these were shameful. Here is the biblical guideline for this room, he says. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That's Philippians 4 eight. So the bottom line is here, you may need to get rid of some of the materials you're reading or the music you're listening to or the uh, movies you're watching or install that web website blocking program on your computer in order for you to not feel uncomfortable about Jesus visiting that room. Next, Munger says, visualize asking Jesus into the dining room of your heart. That's where your appetites and desires abide. He talked about, uh, James talked about this last Sunday. What would Jesus find on your menu of favorite dishes? Munger said his menu, including money, included money, academic degree in stocks, newspaper articles of fame and fortune as side dishes, and there were the things I liked, the kind of secular fare. If things of this sort dominate your daydreams about life's goals, you may also be neglecting this counsel from Jesus, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you as well. After showing Jesus the living room and workroom of Munger's life, Jesus says there's a peculiar odor in the house. Something must be dead. And it sounds like, or it feels like it's coming from upstairs. Maybe that closet that's up there. That place in your heart contains maybe a few old things you've never been able to show anyone. Old hurts, old wounds, old pains that result from being abused or that result from your making mistakes of your sins that have just been hidden there. And sadly, you say to him, I'll give you the key, but you'll have to open that closet and clean it out. I don't have the strength to do it. So Munger says he takes the key, goes inside, he begins to clean out the once hidden abuses and sufferings of childhood or the shameful things that he had done and the deep wound that may have come from his own foolishness at one time or another. And he repaints the room, puts the win uh, a window in it that allows the breezes to come in. And Munger says he had a sense of relief and he was able to release what he felt about that 
and put some of those ugly uh, events of his past uh, in Jesus' hands. Finally, Munger writes, it comes to you like a bolt from the blue that there's another way to do this. So you say, Lord, is there any chance that you could manage the whole house and operate it for me as you see fit and as you did with that closet? And Jesus' face lights up, he said, and, you're, and you hear him reply, I'd love to do that. That's what I want you to do because as a Christian, as a victorious Christian, you cannot do it in your own strength. And then he pauses and says, but I'm just a guest. I have no authority to proceed. This property isn't mine. And Munger comes to the end of, of his story by saying, dropping to my knees, I said, Lord, you have been a guest and I have been the host. From now on, I'm going to be the servant. You're going to be the owner and master. Running as fast as I could to the strong box, I took out the title deed to the house and I eagerly signed the house over to him alone for time and eternity. Here I said, here it is, all that I am and have forever. Now you run the house. Folks, that's the difference between making Jesus Lord of your life and just a guest in your life. Now, what's the final test of the nature of your faith in Jesus? The test that John talks about is putting your faith in God's testimony, that is, his word. 1 John 5, 9 and 10, we accept you in testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God and has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. One of the greatest events of the history of God's people in the Old Testament was the construction and dedication of Solomon's temple. I was just reading about this in my daily readings this past week, and it's astounding the number of people that it uh, took to not only build the temple itself, but to carve out all the rocks and, and, and the big, uh, huge rocks that made up the temple, and also to get those then to Jerusalem uh, without the... the uh, the motorized kinds of ways that we do it today, but actually just by, the, by backs and by strength. But that's, that's what uh, it took. It took 183,000 men and it took seven and a half years to build it. And the dedication itself was a, a significant event. But with all the splendor and the pageantry that went into that, the presence of God, the scripture says, did not fill the temple until the Ark of the Covenant was set in the most holy place. That Ark of the Covenant had gone with them from Egypt uh, through the 40 years of wilderness wanderings and then into, the, into David's kingship and to now Solomon's kingship and was finally brought into the temple. Then God's presence was placed in it. And in like manner, we may have beautiful church buildings with all the uh, adornments that are available, exciting programming, great leadership, but it's all for nothing until we declare the presence of God through his word. God has spoken through the scriptures. We need to listen. We need to proclaim it. His word. 
Now, when our faith is placed in the authority of Scripture, we will obey whether or not we recognize the wisdom of those instructions and whether or not we agree with them. For example, we baptize by immersion in water, not because we think it's the best way or the wisest way, but because it's the Bible way. We have the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day, not because we think it's good and proper to do that, but because it's very clear in the book of Acts that the scriptures emphasize the importance of sharing it every first day of the week. And we have a plurality of elders who oversee the affairs of the local church because that's the pattern that was set down, especially in the book of Acts and in Paul's letters for the church government as it's supposed to be from the New Testament. You see, the authority of God's word is revealed through the church only when we respond to God's word with faith and obedience. All ideas and teachings need to be tested against the Bible. It doesn't matter if some particular popular idea or teaching sounds plausible or helps you feel better or even that it works. If it's contrary to scripture, it does matter and it is not to be incorporated into the church. It does not pass the testimony as being from God. But the problem is today, in some cases, there's little difference between the appearance of culture and the appearance of the church. I just read this week a a poll released by uh, George Barna on May 10th. He interviewed 1,000 Christian pastors that were polled. Only 37% held a biblical worldview. 62%, he said, blended the beliefs from several theologies and cultural traditions. Regular Barner wrote, this is another strong piece of evidence that the culture is influencing the American church more than Christian churches are influencing the culture. When there is little difference between the appearance of the culture and the appearance of the church, then the church has strayed from its commitment to God's word. So how can we know that we have the spirit of God living in us? By by testing the nature of our faith in Jesus. Have you acknowledged that Jesus is the Christ who's come in the flesh from God, who is in fact God in human flesh? Is Jesus Christ Lord of your life? Have you made him Lord of your life that that will empower your faith and enable you to resist the lures that the world has to offer? And have you placed your faith in God's word, word as direct revelation from God that he has spoken to you through the scriptures and that you and I need to listen to and obey? In his book, Fresh Faith, Jim Cimbala uh, uh, points out very well how we so often in Christianity focus on our own ability rather than on God's abilities as he works through us. He says, true Christianity is this, to trust, know and trust Jesus, to rely on him, to admit all our strength comes from him. That kind of faith is not only what pleases God, but it also is the, the only channel through which the power of God flows into our lives so that we can live victoriously for him. It is what Paul meant in Philippians 4.13 when he wrote, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So here once again, God wants you to be confident in your relationship with him. 
and that you can know his spirit lives in you and you can have that confidence by testing the nature of your faith in Jesus. And if you have yet to declare your faith in him as your Lord and Savior and be baptized into the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and to receive the gift of his Holy Spirit, I earnestly encourage you to seek out someone, a friend, a, a, an elder here, a staff member, someone who can lead you in your study of your word to know that what it will take for you to make that, that step of commitment to Christ as Lord of your life. And I encourage you to do it as soon as possible. Let's now continue in our worship as we prepare to share in the symbols of Christ's body and his blood. <laughs> 